You guys ready to get in the Word this morning? Yes. Uh, no, I, thank you, though. I appreciate that. You know, uh, if you've been here, we have been going through the book of Acts. And uh, we're, what I'm going to do is, uh, I just felt led to take a little break from that for uh, the time leading up to Easter. So the next seven weeks, we're really just going to focus on the redemptive sufferings of our Lord Jesus. And really, that was the message that Paul and the apostles went around proclaiming throughout all the synagogues across the Mediterranean basis, right? That was the gospel. Christ and him crucified. That's what Paul said to the Corinthians. That is what I preach. In fact, I didn't want to know any other message among you except Christ and him crucified. So because uh, we've entered uh, a season that many Christians celebrate, a season called Lent, began last Wednesday. It, it kind of commemorates the 40 days of fasting of our Lord Jesus when he fasted in the wilderness after uh, he was baptized, right before he began his ministry. And, uh, you know, a lot of Christians during this time, they, they give something up, they fast, as they recall the 40 days of Jesus. But it's an, also a time when Christians meditate on Christ's sufferings, on his holy passion. And that's what we're going to do the next six Sundays. We're, we're going to dive deep into what transpired over the last 18 to 20 hours from the Garden of Gethsemane to Golgotha and when Christ was finally laid in the tomb. And I believe what transpired over that short period of time was the greatest act of love that the world has ever seen, right? In fact, those moments are so important to the heart of God that when we look at the gospel writings, about 10 to 15 percent of each gospel just talks about the moment from Gethsemane to Golgotha. Each of them have about over 100 verses each to tell us what Christ underwent for our salvation. So we're going to be looking at those records these next six weeks, or seven weeks. The first week this morning, we're going to be looking at the garden. Next Sunday, we'll be looking at the arrest. The third Sunday, we're going to be looking at the religious trial in front of Caiaphas and, and Annas. The fourth Sunday, we'll be looking at the civil trial in front of Pontius Pilate. The fifth Sunday, we'll be looking at the Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering, the scourging, the crown, the carrying of the cross. The sixth Sunday, we're going to be looking at the crucifixion. And then we'll join in seven Sundays, and we'll look at the resurrection, amen, for Easter Sunday. So this morning, we're going to look at the garden. Amen? You know, it was 2,000 years ago on Passover, Nisan the 14th, in 33 AD, in Jerusalem, John tells us that it was a cold night. He tells us that in John 18. In fact, he says, it was so cold that Jesus' number one apostle, remember his name, Peter? Remember, he's in the courtyard of the palace of Caiaphas and Annas. And he is so cold that he risks going to the light of the fire 
And having his face seen by the people who had arrested Jesus, he's so cold that he moves over to that fire and he ends up denying Jesus. Remember that? Well, not only was that night very cold, but it was a night filled with expectation and excitement by hundreds of thousands of Jews. Remember, Jesus and his disciples are in Jerusalem. And the population in Jerusalem had swollen to its yearly height. Josephus tells us, or historians of that time tell us, that there were about 200,000 Jews that crammed into Jerusalem instead of the normal population, which was about 25,000. So the population octupled. It was so jammed full of people that many pilgrims who came to Jerusalem to observe that most holy festival, they would be strewn out sleeping all over the Mount of Olives because there wasn't enough housing to take care of everybody. Okay, and, and they are excitedly making preparations for this most holy feast, the Passover, a festival that commemorated God's deliverance of Egypt, uh, of Israel from Egypt 1,500 years earlier. It received that name Passover because God had done what? He had passed over the homes of all who had trusted God's word to take a lamb, a spotless lamb, a blemishless lamb as their substitute and slay it and eat it and sprinkle their blood over their doorposts as their substitute, right? And as they're getting ready and making preparations for that holy festival the next afternoon and the next night, you know, they're also bubbling with excitement about the ministry of a rabbi from Galilee, right? A rabbi that some of them believed to be their long-awaited-for Messiah. And a common, the most common belief about the Messiah among the Jews at that time was that he would deliver Israel from Roman oppression in a similar way that Moses had delivered Israel from Egyptian oppression, right? In fact, just four days earlier, on Palm Sunday, we're told how Jesus came into Jerusalem riding on a donkey. He was fulfilling a prophecy from Zechariah, and the Jews would have seen that. The Jews would have known that, and so they cry out to him, Hosanna to the Son of David. That word Hosanna is just a Hebrew word. It means save us now. They were wanting this Son of David to be a political savior, similar to how David was to restore the glory of Israel, to restore the glory of Jerusalem, to restore the glory of God's people. Well, calling on this rabbi, Jesus, to save them made a lot of sense, for his name means Yahweh's salvation. Many knew he was very capable for this job because for three and a half years, he had astonished thousands of Jews all across the land, right? He opened blind eyes and mute ears, which is something Isaiah said the Messiah would do. He fed thousands of people on two occasions with just a few loaves of bread. The greatest prophet, Elijah, had only fed hundreds of people with some pieces of bread. He had walked on a stormy sea. In the Old Testament, the only person who walks on a stormy sea is God himself. Even more than that, he had turned water into wine. 
He had cast out legions of demons from people. He cleansed lepers. And he even raised people from the dead, including someone he just raised five days earlier, his best friend, or one of his best friends, Lazarus, who had been dead for four days. If anyone was the Messiah, it must be Jesus of Nazareth. So these pilgrims, they're bubbling with excitement. Jesus of Nazareth is here. We're about to celebrate our most holy Passover. I wonder when he is going to bring about deliverance from our enemy, deliverance from Rome. But though Jesus was hailed by many Jews as the Messiah, he also drew the ire of many of their leaders, right? In fact, on multiple occasions, especially in the Gospel of John, we're told that the leaders wanted to stone Jesus. And he would just sneak out, right? He, he would disappear from them, and they couldn't do anything to him. Why? Because his time had not yet come. They accused him of being demon-possessed. They accused him of being a blasphemer. And when he entered Jerusalem on Monday of Holy Week, the day after Palm Sunday, that was the 10th of Nisan, four days before Passover, And when he entered that day, what did the Jewish leaders do? They began to interrogate him relentlessly, relentlessly, desperately seeking to trap him in his words and incriminate him. Interestingly, during this same time, as the religious leaders are interrogating him on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and Thursday, guess what's happening at the temple precincts? Well, all the priests are inspecting the lambs that would be used for the Passover. In fact, this is what God told Moses in Exodus 12, verse 3. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month, Nisan, every man shall take for himself a lamb according to the house of his father, a lamb for a household. Verse 5. Your lamb shall be without blemish, a male of the first year. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. Now you shall keep it until the fourteenth day of the same month, Nisan. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill it at twilight. So Jesus enters with all the other Passover lambs on Monday. And just as they're inspecting those lambs, he's being inspected. In fact, uh, we see that the elders, the chief priests, and the scribes immediately question him about his authority and question him about the baptism of John. Right after that, we see Pharisees and Herodians challenge him about paying taxes to Caesars. Then right after that, we see Sadducees challenge him about some difficult questions relating to the resurrection. And then after that, we see scribes and lawyers question him about the greatest commandment. In all, we're told that seven different groups of Jewish leaders questioned him. A fullness of questioning, a fullness of inspection. And of course, As they're inspecting Jesus, guess what? Jesus passes all their questioning with flying colors, right? He astonishes them. In some ways, he enrages them because they couldn't find any fault in him. They couldn't trap him the way they wanted to trap him. In fact, after all of the investigation, after all of the inspection, those four days, this is what Mark says in Mark 12, 34. But after that, No one dared question him. So after four days of confrontation, of parables of judgment, of prophetic foretelling, 
Passover arrives. As the sun sunk over the hills of Jerusalem on the 14th of of Nisan, Passover began. And Jesus, who is fully aware of the prophetic significance of this day, he decides to eat the Passover meal with his disciples at the beginning of Passover on that evening instead of the following evening with the rest of the Jews. Because he had something far more important to accomplish when the rest of the Jews were slaughtering their Passover lambs in the temple at 3 p.m. on the next day. He would be the Passover lamb that would be slaughtered, right? In fact, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5, 7, Christ, our Passover lamb, has been slain. But the meal that Jesus has with his followers on the beginning of the 14th of Nisan that evening is many times referred to as his Last Supper. It's a time when he takes the elements of the Passover meal that initially signified the events of the Exodus, and he gives them new meaning. Now the unleavened bread is not just to remind his people that they left Egypt with haste, but the unleavened bread is to remind them that his body would be broken for them over the next 20 hours. Now the blood that was poured out would not just remind them of the blood of the lamb on the doorpost, but of his own blood that would forgive all of their sins, that would save them from eternal death, and that would purchase them as an eternal inheritance. And, And after instituting that new meal, and after eating that Passover that he said he he eagerly desired to eat with them, right before they journeyed to the garden, this is what happens at the end of the meal, Mark tells us in Mark 14, 26. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. You know, this is the only time in all the Gospels when we are told explicitly that Jesus sung a song. He sang in the moment of his greatest trial. He sang as he marched into darkness, both physical and spiritual. He sang as he prepared to fight the devil. If Jesus was following the later Jewish liturgy of Passover night, he likely was singing what are known as the Hallel Psalms. Psalms 113 to Psalms 118. And the end of his singing with his disciples would have gone like this. Towards the end of Psalm 118, it says this, Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone which the builders rejected Jewish leaders, has become the chief cornerstone. Verse 27, imagine Jesus singing this. God is Yahweh, and he has given us light. Bind the sacrifice with cords to the horns of the altar. Wow. He sang knowing those scriptures spoke of him. He sang knowing he was about to be that rejected stone. He sang knowing he was about to be that sacrifice that was bound to the altar of the cross. Jesus didn't enter that night unsure of what might happen. In fact, he knew every detail about what was about to take place, right? He told his disciples, assuredly, I say to you, one who eats with me will betray me. Guess what happened? He he, he was betrayed. He said, all of you will will be made to stumble because of me this night. 
For it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Guess what? All of them were made to stumble that night. He told Peter, assuredly, I say to you today, even this night before the cock crows twice, you will deny me three times. Guess what? Before the cock crowed twice, Peter denied him three times. He had already told his disciples on multiple occasions what was to happen to him, and yet they still didn't get it. In fact, in Matthew 16, he puts it like this. After Jesus confesses, or Peter confesses, that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah, and, he, and Peter doesn't understand what the Messiah is going to look like, Jesus begins to say this in Matthew 16, 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised the third day. Jesus knew exactly what was going to happen, but his disciples still didn't get it. So Jesus marches to the garden singing the prophetic word. He's ready to be rejected. He's ready to be bound. He's ready to be tortured. He's ready to be killed. He's ready to take the sin of the whole world on himself. But even though he goes singing and marching into battle, that doesn't mean that the battle's still not a struggle. How many know that? For he was about to face the greatest battle that anybody in the world has ever faced, and he faced it in a garden called Gethsemane. But before he gets to that garden, he first crosses a brook. And the first point I want to make is this. The king crosses the Kidron. This is what it says in John 18, verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went out with his disciples. This is right after they sing the hymn. Over the brook Kidron, where there was a garden, which he and his disciples entered. You know, the Kidron was a murky, shallow water source in the valley right outside of the Temple Mount. Many say the excess blood of the Temple sacrifices, they had a drainage system where it would drain out to the brook Kidron. We're also told there in 2 Kings that that is where there had been multiple pagan images and altars that had been pulverized there and, and washed away. And, and Jesus... He came to the brook Kidron. He saw that murky river mixed with sacrificial blood where sin and idolatry had been washed away. And he likely thought of the work that lay in front of him. He had just told his disciples that his blood would be poured out for the remission of their sins. And in that low, dark valley where the most heinous crimes had been committed by pagans like child sacrifice, you know, there's the picture of Jesus bearing the penalty of even those sins, entering to even that depth. For there is no sin too great that cannot be washed away by the blood of Jesus. For it reaches to the highest mountain and it flows to the lowest valley. It's the blood that gives us strength from day to day and that blood will never lose its powers. So he goes to the lowest valley and he crosses that Kidron. And, and then it says that he willingly marches to the garden. And as he's marching, he would soon be besieged by the greatest anguish any man has ever experienced. If he's not already beginning to besiege 
at that moment. And the image of a Jewish king in great anguish leaving Jerusalem and crossing the Kidron, it echoes the story of their greatest king, King David. You know, toward the end of David's life, right, he's getting, he had just spent his whole life setting up the kingdom, getting all the materials ready so Solomon could build the great temple. He's getting ready to pass on his inheritance and everything he had worked for in his life over to Solomon. And then guess what? There's a coup against him. His son Absalom rises up and he betrays him. And then one of his closest counselors, one of his best friends, a guy by the name of Ahithophel, he, he rises up and he betrays his good friend David and he sides with his son Absalom in this coup against him. And upon learning about his son's treachery against him, this is what we're told in 2 Samuel 15. Then the king himself crossed over the brook Kidron. So David went up by the ascent of the Mount of Olives and wept as he went up. And he had his head covered and went barefoot. And all the people who were with him covered their heads and went up weeping as they went. Right? Well, Jesus, that's what he's doing. And many say that David, during this time, this is what he writes Psalm 55 about. It's about being betrayed by his son, Absalom and being betrayed by his great friend Ahithophel. In Psalm 55, 5 says this, David writing, Fearfulness and trembling have come upon me, and horror has overwhelmed me. Verse 13, why? Because it wasn't an enemy that betrayed him, but it was you, a man my equal, my companion, and my acquaintance. This is a fitting description of Jesus having fear and trembling and horror and agony and terror overwhelm him as he enters into that dark garden, right? Knowing that he would be betrayed by his own people. He came to his own and his own did not receive him. He would be betrayed by one of his closest companions, one of the twelve Judas. But he crosses the Kedron like King David. And just like King David, it looked like his kingdom was about to crumble. It actually experienced its greatest glory right after that. And it passes to Solomon. Just, it looks like Jesus' kingdom is about to crumble. But in that hour of greatest tragedy, right, we know what happens. Jesus ascends to the highest throne and he, he, he gives us his kingdom to his Solomon, the church. The second point is this, point number two, entering a familiar garden. Look what it goes on to say in John 18, 2. And Judas, who betrayed him, also knew the place, for Jesus often met there with his disciples. It's not like Jesus is in the garden of Gethsemane once. No, he's there all the time. In fact, Luke says something similar in Luke 22, 39. Coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives as he was what? Accustomed. And his disciples also followed him. Because John says in verse 1 that the garden needed to be entered, many believe that it was a walled, privately owned space near the base of the Mount of Olives. It wasn't like any pilgrim in Jerusalem could venture in there and spend the night like they could on the rest of the Mount of Olives. But it was a special garden on the Mount. 
The word Gethsemane means a wine or oil press, and we can assume the garden likely housed an oil press where olives from the surrounding area or from the garden itself were brought to be crushed and pressed into that precious ancient commodity of oil. For Jesus to have frequented this site gives the impression that one of his wealthy followers had given him access to the garden whenever he was in Jerusalem. So he could either spend alone time there in prayer or have discussions with his disciples and friends there. Maybe this was even the place where Jesus spoke to Nicodemus one night. We don't know. A tradition says that the garden was owned by the father of John Mark, who also owned a nice house in Jerusalem. Whatever the case, this was a space that had been important to Jesus throughout his ministry, and he met there often. Who knows, you know, uh, how many people he met with. He, he met with a bunch of disciples frequently. The fact that he desired to bring his disciples to a garden was by design, right? He wanted to impress the imagery of garden on their hearts and on their minds. He wanted that to have a lasting impact on them, that he would walk with them, that he would talk with them, that he would rest with them in the cool of the day in the garden, right? And those who are familiar with the Bible understand that the garden is very important to biblical history, right? Before God commanded man to venture out into the wider world, God wanted them grounded somewhere. He wanted them to have a home base. And what was it? It was a garden. In fact, immediately after God creates Adam from the dust of the ground and breathes into the breath of life, we're told that he does something with this man. Look what it says in Genesis 2.8. Yahweh God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man, Adam, whom he had formed. Right? He could have placed him anywhere. But he didn't place them in Havilah or Cush or Assyria or the other named zones in God's newly created world. Rather, he put them in the eastern part of Eden, a place that means uh, delight and pleasure, where he had specially crafted a garden just for him, right? This garden would have been the most beautiful place the world has ever seen. It was especially planted and designed by God himself in the pre-fallen world. In fact, look what verse 9 goes on to say. And out of the ground Yahweh God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. <laughs> every tree that is pleasant for sight. Has anyone here seen a beautiful tree before? Imagine all the beautiful trees you've ever seen times a hundred in the Garden of Eden. Imagine all the best fruit you've ever had times a hundred in the Garden of Eden. Even better than that, we're told in the next chapter that God would come and walk with them in the garden in the cool of the day. So the garden was the place that was filled with the manifested special presence of God. There has never been a place more glorious. There has never been a place more enlivening. That was it. And God meant for it to be their hub in the world, the place where they rested, the place where they were based, the place where they gained strength before they fulfilled their commission to go out and take dominion over the world and Edenize the world, make it like a garden, like God had made a garden, as God's image bearers. He said, first, you're going to come and rest here, you're going to spend time with me, and then you're going to go out and do the things I do as my regents, as my image bearers. But we all know what happened, right? Man sinned. 
And what happened? They were expelled from the garden. The gate of the garden was shut. And not only that, God put a fiery cherubim right there with a flaming sword guarding its entrance so nobody could get in, right? But what was the heart of God? The heart of the God was that they would be back in the garden. And how, how does he demonstrate that to him? He symbolizes it throughout the whole Old Testament. The altars represent mountains, just like Eden was on a mountain, about ascending back to the garden of God. The tabernacle and temple are filled with, with garden Im imagery, symbolizing what? Return to the garden of Eden. Well, when Jesus stepped into the garden on the 14th of Nisan, he began to reverse the fate of mankind. Whereas Adam disobeyed God's commandment, Jesus perfectly obeyed. Whereas Adam did not guard and keep his bride from the enemy, Jesus perfectly guards and keeps his bride, the church. Whereas Adam took the forbidden fruit from the hand of Eve in defiance of God, Jesus took the cup of righteous indignation for, for our sin from his Father's hand. And every moment of his life, even to the point of death on the cross, Jesus perfectly lived out the will of his Father in heaven. And he would suffer in a garden. He would pay the price for our sin in a garden. He would rise again in a garden. In fact, Mary Magdalene mistakes him for being a gardener because he's in the garden. Comparing Adam and Jesus, Paul writes this, Romans 5.18. Therefore, it's through one man's offense, judgment came to all, resulting in condemnation. Even so, through one man's, through one man's righteous act. The free gift came to all men, resulting in justification of life. For as by one man's disobedience, Adam, many were made sinners, so also by one man's obedience, many will be made righteous. Aren't you glad for the obedience of Jesus? This right standing, this uncondemned status that results because of Jesus' obedience is a gift to all mankind. And verse 17 says that the only thing you need to do is receive it. How is it received? It's received by faith, right? Those who receive the abundance of grace, those who receive the gift of righteousness are the ones who reign in life, are the ones who not just understand redemption has been accomplished, but have that redemption applied into their life. So what a beautiful thing that Jesus regularly wanted to meet with his disciples in a garden. May we learn to take moments uh, out of the busyness of our days and weeks to intentionally spend time with Jesus in the garden. In fact, in the Song of Songs in chapter 6, verse 2, he says that we are his garden. He is with you. He never leaves you. In fact, in, in 1 Corinthians or 2 Corinthians 6, it, it talks that he walks inside of us. So let's spend time with him in the garden frequently like he brought his disciples frequently to the Garden of Gethsemane. Point number three I want to make is this. He was crushed in the olive press. Now let's read the fuller story. Matthew 26, 36. Then Jesus came with them to a place called Gethsemane and said to the disciples, Sit here while I go and pray over there. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John. And he began to be sorrowful and deeply distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. Stay here and watch with me. He went a little farther. Luke says about a stone's throw. 
and fell on his face and prayed, saying, Oh, my Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Then he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, What? Could you not watch with me one hour? Watch and pray, lest you enter into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time he went away and prayed, saying, O oh, my Father, if this cup cannot pass away from me unless I drink it, your will be done. And he came and found them asleep again, for their eyes were heavy. So he left them and went away again and prayed the third time, saying the same words. Then he came to his disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going, see my betrayers at hand. So upon entering the garden, he tells eight of his disciples to sit near the entrance, likely where the oil press was in a cave or enclosed structure. He then proceeded to take Peter, James, and John with him deeper into the garden, and with each step into that familiar space, darkness encroached. A heavy burden began to descend on Jesus' body and soul. Matthew says he became sorrowful. He became deeply distressed. Mark's gospel adds that he became troubled, or in some translations put it, he became terrified. Luke says that he began to be in great agony. And though his trauma was outwardly apparent, in order to make his disciples fully aware of the trial he was facing, he flat out tells them, right? He says, my soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even to death. So stay here and watch with me, right? He makes it exceedingly plain to them what's going on. He then goes a stone's throw deeper into the garden, and in that alone space, Matthew tells us that he fell on his face prostrate before the Father, and he prayed. What a scene, right? Now, being the Passover, we know the Passover was the night of the full moon in the sky. So in that pre-modern world with no light pollution, we can imagine shards of the moonlight being refracted through the olive trees, falling as a mild spotlight on Jesus, there, the blessed Savior, highlighting his agony as he lay prostrate on the ground. Maybe there's clouds overhead. Maybe there's shadows from the cheese. But, but Peter, James, and John have some sort of partial view of their blessed Savior prostrate before the Father. And, and they hear him be, because we're told that he cries aloud. They, they hear some of the prayers that he offers to the Father before they fall asleep, right? They, in fact, the book of Hebrews says that he offered loud cries to the Father. Well... These were the guys who just hours earlier had declared their willingness to share in Jesus' sufferings. They even declared their willingness and boast that they would die with him. But would they live up to their commitments? Would they stay awake? Could they watch for even an hour? Would they follow him to his suffering and death? And we know the answer to all those questions is no. You know, that's not the first time Peter and James and John were alone with Jesus. They had been private uh, witnesses to some of his most glorious acts when he raised uh, Jairus' daughter from the dead. When he was transfigured, uh, when, when Jesus was transfigured on the mountain, it was Peter, James, and John who were there. 
He, he was shining brightly, and we're told that Elijah and Moses came and spoke with Jesus about his exodus, about his departure, about the cross. And Peter, James, and John, they're witnesses about that. That They heard the thunderous voice from heaven that Jesus was the beloved Son of God, right? But even among that manifested glory of Jesus shining like a sun, it tells us in, in Mark's account of the transfiguration that they were very sleepy. They didn't understand that the greater Moses, that the greater light of the world needed to suffer and die. How often are we like Peter, James, and John? How often are we very sleepy to the Lord of glory in our midst? How often do we forget the glory of the cross? How often do we forget to watch and pray so that we might not enter salvation? Jesus was face to face with the greatest horror any man has ever experienced. In the garden, Jesus went under real suffering. You know, a lot of people have a view of Jesus that he's just this God right in our midst. And that he, he wasn't really fully human. Well, let me tell you something, that's a Gnostic view of Jesus, right? The, the, the Jesus of the Gospels, the true Jesus, the Jesus seated at the right hand of heaven, shares in the same flesh and blood as you and me. He is perfectly and fully human, right? And so he, he, <laughs> he hungers, he sleeps, he weeps for Lazarus, he weeps over Jerusalem, he rejoices. But in the garden we see a whole other depth of his humanity, a level of suffering and deep distress that is hard for Matthew, Mark, and Luke to put into words. You know, Jesus had both a human and a divine will. He had both a human and divine soul. And that mystery that is hard to unravel, we know that his human will, even under the greatest pressure and trial, is always submissive to his divine will. But he still, even though, even though he's ultimately going to be victorious, he still undergoes extraordinary turmoil. Why? Well, I'm sure understanding that he's going to face Roman flogging and crucifixion, the most painful and humiliating form of capital punishment ever devised, would have caused any man in the garden, if it wasn't Jesus, to flee and run away for his life, right? Jesus would have, walking through Israel for the last 33 years of his life, he would have been an eyewitness of many of those Roman crucifixions. But though Jesus knew those pains would be super grievous to his flesh, I don't believe that was the main cause of his torturous suffering or horror in the garden. Rather, the moment Jesus stepped into that olive press Gethsemane, he began to experience the crushing weight of the sins of the entire world. And what was so soul-wrenching, to the point that his body broke out in bloody sweat, was that the perfect, sinless, spotless Son of God was being made sin for us. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Can you imagine facing the hell Jesus was about to face and not run away? Can't imagine it. As the Lamb of God, as the suffering servant, He was being crushed for our wrongdoings. Isaiah 53, 5 says this about the suffering servant. But He was pierced for our, trans our offenses. He was crushed 
for our wrongdoings. The punishment for our well-being was laid upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. A crushing for every heinous sin that has ever been committed or ever will be committed was on Jesus. You know, the word Gethsemane in the Gospels is recorded seven times. Jesus was completely crushed in the oil press. The fourth point I want to look at is this. Birth pangs to bloody labor. We can compare the sufferings of Jesus to birth pangs. The birth pangs began when Jesus entered Jerusalem Monday morning. This is what it says in John 12, 27, the day after Palm Sunday. Now my soul is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour, but for this purpose I came to this hour. He's troubled beginning in that Monday. As he rode to Jerusalem, we're told that he wept over those who would reject him. A couple days later on Tuesday, he agonizes over those who had been unwilling to be gathered under his wings. But it was only once he entered the garden that he went into full labor. It was only there the birth pangs began to be excruciatingly painful and bloody. In fact, right before going to the garden, as he's observing the Last Supper with the disciples, this is one thing he told them in John 16, 21. A woman, when she is in labor, has sorrow because her hour has come. But as soon as she has given birth to the child, she no longer remembers the anguish for the joy that a human being has been born into the world. Why did Jesus endure the sufferings? Why did Jesus endure the cross? Because he saw you being born again. He saw you as his eternal inheritance. Hebrews 12 verse 2 says that we look unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame and is sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He knew he was the suffering servant. This is what Isaiah says about that, Isaiah 53, 11. Having suffered, Jesus, Jesus had this on, he fully understood this, right? Having suffered, he will reflect on his work. He will be satisfied when he understands what he has done. My servant will acquit many, for he carried their sins. So he's in agony in the garden. And, 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 and this is what it says in Hebrews 5, verse 7. Who in the days of his flesh, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death and was heard because of his godly how was he heard? Well, he was strengthened in that moment to endure the cross. And God ultimately, right, vindicated him to the right hand of God. So, so though he offered up vehement cries with tears, though he was thoroughly terrified and in agony, such that his body was drenched in bloody sweat, he knew that at the end of that bloody labor, there would be an eternal joy. He knew he would look at his labor with satisfaction over all the slaves of sin and death who had been remade into sons of God. Jesus endured suffering and shame so we could experience glory with him forever. He endured bloody torture of Gethsemane and Golgotha so he could purchase us unto him. Now, I, I, I mentioned this bloody sweat. We didn't read that in Matthew but we do read it in Luke. You know, Luke is the doctor among the evangelists, and he tends to record these sorts of things. 
Look what Luke says about it in Luke 22, 44. And having been in agony, he was more earnestly praying, and his sweat became, as it were, great drops of blood falling on the ground. Now, some interpreters disagree over this verse, whether Luke is communicating just that the sweat was pouring so fast and profusely from Jesus that it was like blood leaking from open wounds, or whether Jesus was actually sweating actual blood. One of the earliest interpreters, Irenaeus, understood it as actual blood, and many other Christian interpreters have understood that as well. Today, we know this is a medical condition called hema. Tedrosis, something like that, hematidrosis. And, and they say that this state of sweating blood results from the sudden onslaught of extreme fear and intense sorrow. And people can actually break out in sweating blood. So even a lot of the iconography of the Christian church through the ages has depicted Jesus in the garden under this intense agony as someone who is beginning to, at this moment, sweat blood. We have a picture. Let's pull up a picture. Here's just one such example. If you can see it, all, those, all the sweat dropping there from Jesus in the garden there is, is drops of blood. Dr. Barbet says, The blood mingles with the sweat, and it is this mixture which pearls over the whole surface of the body. That is what Jesus is undergoing. In fact, if the Shroud of Turn is the burial cloth of Jesus... When, when they did 3D imaging of it in the 70s, it revealed that the entirety of the man of the shroud's skin surface was soaked in blood, indicating that it, he did indeed suffer from hematidrosis. Now, remember, the garden is called Gethsemane. It simply means olive or, or oil wine press. He was crushed like an olive would be crushed. You know, when olives are crushed, and those ancient olive presses, the oil actually oozes out mixed with the crushed rinds of the olives. Even today, they show you this. And be, so before coming out as gloriously golden oil, right, it pours forth as redemptively red mixture, mixed in the torn flesh of its outer sufferings. That's like Jesus, as he's pouring out the oil of gladness, it first comes forth in this redemptively red blood. The first blood that is shed... Right For our redemption is not blood that is drawn by the people who would beat, brutalize him and, and beat him up, but it is a blood that is shed by him taking on the sins of the world and experiencing the agony of that sin. And in that intense state of agony, Jesus says this, Matthew 14, 36, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not what I will, but what you will. You know, Jesus had no death wish. Jesus wasn't suicidal. If salvation could be accomplished some other way, he gladly would have gone that route. But there was no other way. And so Jesus joyously, obediently consented to the plan of heaven. Salvation could only rest in one source alone, the blood of the Lamb. The cross, Jesus even affirms himself time and time again, was a divine necessity. There is no forgiveness of sins without the shedding of blood, the book of Hebrews says. So even in the agony, he consents to the will of God. 
He prays an hour, then he prays an hour again, then he prays an hour again. And in one of his last prayers, in that agony, this is the last point I want to make, he's touched by an angel. Point number five. You know, the garden was when Satan came back to Jesus in full force. After his baptism, after his 40 days of uh, fasting and being tempted by the devil in the wilderness, we're told that the devil left him until a more opportune time. When was that opportune time? It was here in Gethsemane. I imagine that Satan, with legions of his demons, gather in order to make one final assault on Jesus, seeking to get him to rebel against the Father and fall at, you know, fall at uh, his feet instead of the Father's feet. But what does Jesus do when he's surrounded by this assault of Satan? He prays. And he prays with an intensity and with a fervor that he has never prayed before. He prays three separate times. His desire is to embrace the cross, grow stronger with each prayer. right? Even, but even though all of his close friends who he asked to watch and pray with him and they fall asleep, though they do not provide encouragement, the Father from heaven sends encouragement. Luke twenty-two forty-three says this, Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. You know, I tell you what, we have all the help we need. We have the hosts of heaven with us, right? Man will fail you. How many know that? God will never fail you. A creature came and strengthened the creator. You know, in the Old Testament, we're told how an angel once strengthened Elijah by providing him angel cake and a jug of water. We're told how an angel once strengthened Daniel by touching him. And he said this in Daniel 9, verse 9. Or he said this, O man greatly beloved, fear not. Be strong, yes, be strong. And then it says this in Daniel 9, 9. When he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Jesus had been strengthened before by angels. In fact, after his previous temptation in the wilderness with the devil, it says in Matthew 4, 11, that angels came and strengthened him. Well, maybe the angel in Gethsemane said some encouraging words like that were spoken over Daniel. Maybe he spoke of the glories of his exodus. Whatever the case, the strength came so that Jesus could endure a greater agony. For it was after the strengthening that it began to say that he breaks out in sweat. Why? Because he had fully embraced the will of the Father and the cup of the Father at that time with the strengthening word from heaven, and that's when the blood begins to flow. Charles Spurgeon theorized this about what the angel might have done. The angel may have whispered the promises, pictured before his mind's eye the glory of his success, sketched his resurrection, portrayed the scene when his angels would bring his chariots from on high to bear him to his throne. Right? The angel might have said, yes, you will go through this suffering, but you will go from suffering to glory. But regardless of what the strengthening was, we know it caused Jesus to pray more earnestly. So what do we see about Jesus' prayer here in the garden? We see that it was a humble prayer. He was on his face. We see that it was a relational prayer. He says, Abba, Father. We see that it is a persevering prayer. He prays three separate times, probably around an hour each. We see it is a fervent prayer. He prays earnestly. It is heartfelt. And we see ultimately it is a yielding prayer. Thy will be done. Many of the things 
how he had taught his disciples to pray, are all found in his own prayer here in the garden. And it's a model for our prayer in our hours of darkness and trial. It's a model for our prayer during every season that we're in. And we're going to spend some time this Wednesday praying. We're going to look a little bit more at this scene, and we're going to look a little bit more at how Jesus prays, and we're going to spend some time praying. So come out this Wednesday. The last thing I want to say about it is this. The disciples in the garden, they symbolized really the tabernacle. We have the eight that are by the entrance, where probably the olive press is, kind of like the bronze laver outside in the courtyard of the tabernacle. Then we have three brought further in the garden. The garden in the Old Testament is the tabernacle, the holy of holies, or the holy space, not the holy of holies, the holy space there in the garden. And then Jesus goes a, a stone's throw further, just like he's the high priest in the holy of holies. And he goes before his father in that place. And everyone else falls asleep. And he prays alone. And it's a high priestly prayer. It's like what he prays in John 17. He prays on our behalf. Even when we fell, even when we've fallen asleep, even in when we mess up, even when we sin, we have a Savior who is perfect. And our Savior never ceases to make intercession for you. How many know that you should make intercession for one another? For your spouses, for your children, for your friends, for our world. How many know a lot of times we fail doing that? Now we can get back on track and we can intercede. But here's the good news. Jesus never fails to intercede for you and me. Hebrews 7.25 Therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost those who come to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Amen. So Jesus was crushed by your sin in the garden. He was crushed by my sin in the garden. He paid the price for our salvation in the garden. So what we're going to do Wednesday, like I said, we're going to look at the subject of watching and praying. We're going to look at the subject of the spirit being willing, but the flesh being weak. We're going to be looking at the subject of, can you watch with me one hour? Can we pray? Can we sing hymns like Jesus and march victoriously to our trials? In the midst of our trials, can we get on our face like Jesus and can we pray? And can can the thing that rises most in our prayer be this? Thy will be done. Thy kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Amen? We're going to take communion. Is anybody here?